Section 3 of Harper's Young People, Volume 1, Issue 30, May 25, 1880. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Avery Tooley. Harper's Young People, Volume 1, Issue 30, May 25, 1880. The Story of the Winged Tramp by Fletcher Reed. Tramps, you think, are a modern invention, and a very disagreeable one, too. But if you had chanced to live so long ago as when the earth was young, you would know that the institution is a very old and honorable one. You would have heard, too, in that far-off golden age of the winged tramp, a beautiful youth who spent his life in traveling from place to place, sometimes on the earth, sometimes in the air, walking or flying as the humor seized him, a merry fellow withal, and the very prince of the wandering brotherhood. He was indeed a true prince, for his father Zeus was king of Olympia, and his mother Maya was descended from the Titans, an ancient and royal family. Instead of living in the grand Olympian palace, however, Maya preferred to remain in her own home, a beautiful grotto on the hill of Kielen, and it was there that the young prince Hermes was born. Even then, babies were wonderful beings, as they are now and always must be. But of all astonishing and precocious infants, Hermes was certainly the most remarkable. Cuddled and wrapped in his cradle and six hours old by the sun, he leapt to his feet and ran swiftly across the hard, uneven floor of Maya's cave. Just outside the door he spied a tortoise. "'Aha, my fine fellow,' said this wonderful baby. "'You are just the person I wish to see.' The tortoise was so taken by surprise that he could not find a word to say, and by the time he had made up his mind that the best thing for him to do was to get out of the way, there was nothing left of him to get away with, for the baby prince had thrust out his eyes and had converted his shell into a liar. Hermes smiled as he held it between his hands, and then, seating himself by his mother's side, he began to sing, recounting to her all the most wonderful events of her life. It was now that Maya discovered for the first time that her baby wore on his feet a curious pair of sandals, on each of which grew tiny wings. She turned quickly to clasp him in her hands, for she knew by the sign of the winged shoes that he would soon fly away from the little grotto of Kielan. But Hermes sprang out of her reach and laughed gaily as she chased him about the cave, hardly stopping to turn his head as he bounded past her and out into the open air, carrying his lyre in his hands and wearing on his head a funny little hat on which were two wings like those upon his shoes. Faster and faster he flew, now floating on the wind like a swallow, now bounding over the earth, and now rising just above the tops of the highest trees. This was the little tramp's first journey, and his errand, I'm sorry to say, was a very wicked and mischievous one, for no sooner did he see the cows of Prince Apollo feeding in the pastures of Pieria that he decided to steal a couple of them for his breakfast, and to let the rest stray away. Having accomplished this piece of mischief, he went back to his cradle, gliding through the open door as swiftly and softly as the summer wind. Phoebus Apollo soon discovered what had happened and started off in pursuit of the robber, but Hermes was by this time fast asleep. "'What? I steal your cows!' he explained, rubbing his eyes as Apollo stood at the door of Maya's cave. "'I beg your pardon, but I do not even know what a cow is!' Then he laughed to himself and hid his face under the clothes. But Apollo was not to be deceived, 
and Hermes was compelled to leave the pleasant grotto and appear before Zeus to answer for his crimes. Still, the little tramp denied the theft. No, no, he said. I never stole a cow in my life. I do not know a cow from a goat. I indeed. And the boy turned on his heel, laughing as he spoke. Hermes, said Zeus at length from his royal throne, it is useless for you to try longer to deceive us. Return the cows, make up the quarrel, and Apollo will forgive the theft. Hermes saw that his secret was discovered and confessed his fault as gaily as he had before denied it. Prince Apollo was still somewhat out of humor, but as the boy led him back along the sandy shores of Pieria, he told such pleasant stories and sang such bewitching songs that the angry prince began to smile, and at last declared that the music was worth the loss of a hundred cows. Hermes, who was as generous as he was mischievous, immediately made Apollo a present of his lyre, and Apollo, not to be outdone, gave him in return a magic wand. This wand, which was so cunningly carved that it looked like two serpents twining around a slender rod, was called a caduceus, and Hermes carried it with him in all his wanderings. After Apollo and Hermes had exchanged presents, they swore eternal friendship to each other, and then, having pointed out the place where the cows were hid, Hermes hurried back to Olympus. Having once tasted the delights of travel, he could not endure the thought of a quiet, humdrum life in the little cave at Kilen, and he besought the king to send him on some foreign mission. Zeus, pleased with the boy's adventurous spirit, appointed him his special ambassador. Light of foot and light of heart was the bright-haired messenger of the gods, the very merriest tramp that ever walked or flew or ran. Sometimes he showed to travelers the road they had lost— and sometimes he led them far out of the way, stealing their purses and then laughing at their tears. On one occasion, having found Zeus in great distress because the queen had determined to kill Io, a lovely young girl for whom the king was very fond, he declared that he alone would save her. Zeus at first changed Io into a heifer, but the queen discovered the secret and sent Argus, a monster with a hundred eyes, to watch her. It seemed impossible that the lovely Io could escape, and the poor old king was in despair. "'Trust me,' said the cheerful Hermes. "'I will manage the matter.' Swifter than a cloud that flies before the wind, he glided through the air until he reached the spot where the monster lay in wait for Io. With one touch of his wand, Hermes put the beast to sleep, and before he had time to wink even one of his hundred eyes, Argus was dead.' It would take too long to tell of all the wonderful deeds which Hermes, the Argus Slayer, the messenger of the gods, performed. Wherever he went, he was greeted with prayers and songs and gifts, for although he sometimes wrought more harm than good, the winged tramp was always a welcome visitor both to gods and men. Begun in Harper's Young People, number 24, April 13th. The Story of George Washington by Edward Cray. Chapter 7. George Washington was now President Washington. The man was the same, but the work he had to do was very different. And then it was all new. My readers have not yet got so used to doing things that they do not know that it is a great deal harder to do anything for the first time than it is the second or the third. Washington was not only the first president, but the whole government, in which he had so great a part, was a strange thing. 
no one understood exactly how it was going to work, and a great many people in each state were afraid of it. They thought that the president would have too much power, and that he would get to be as bad as a king after a while, and the people hated kings bitterly in those days. Some very earnest but not very just writers went so far as to say that the country had only got rid of George III, who was King of England, to set in his place George I, meaning Washington. And they said the change was like the one the frogs made from King Log to King Stork. What this meant you may find in Aesop's fables. And I must say that our first president was a good deal more like a king in his manners and his notions than our presidents are nowadays. Perhaps he was more so than he would be if he were president now. He was a proud man, not a vain one, but proud of his office, and he wanted people to show their respect for his office by the manner in which they treated him. He dressed very richly and had his wife dress richly too. He rode to and from the capital in a coach with four horses, and sometimes even six, handsomely clad. He put his servants in a sort of uniform, like the livery which noble servants wear, he gave grand parties where he and Mrs. Washington received their guests from a slightly raised platform called a dais. On every occasion where he appeared as President of the United States, he insisted that things should go in a certain order, and with as much display as possible, but in his private life and conduct he was as simple and modest as one could be. In his public work Washington chose some of the best and ablest men in the country to help him. He called Alexander Hamilton from New York to take care of money matters with the title of Secretary of the Treasury. Hamilton was an officer on Washington's staff during the Revolution and had led the Americans over the British redoubts in the last fight at Yorktown. Washington knew him to be as honest and skillful as he was brave and relied on him greatly. Then he called Thomas Jefferson from Virginia, a very clear-headed man with many bold ideas to take charge of any business that might come up with other nations. His title was Secretary of State, and he had a great deal to do, for the governments of Europe had not yet learned to respect the rights of the United States, or to care much for this country in any way. General Washington took up his residence in New York, where Congress was then meeting. The first thing he did was to lay out an order in which business should be done, in such a manner that nothing should be neglected and things should not get confused. His plans were made after asking advice from the chief men about him, for great man as he was, he was always ready to take the counsel of others. Nothing is more striking in reading Washington's letters than his habit of asking advice. It certainly did not come from any lack of courage, for when he had made up his mind, he was very firm in carrying out his plans and when he had to do so, he could act very quickly and wisely without advice, and during the war he frequently did what he thought was best against the advice of his generals. To be continued. End of section 3.